Welcome to the She's All That video podcast. Last year, while you and I were losing our sh- trying to cope with a panic, fear, and uncertainty that we faced, Wendy Jenkins was drawing on a lifetime of experience and training in resilience to give her clients the skills that they needed to deal. Being given just two years to live, undergoing a double lung transplant, and having this change all of the life plans that she and her husband had had, Wendy eventually came back stronger, building a business that helps people build their resilience and well-being, harnessing coaching and a neuroscience-based AI platform to do so, and creating a powerful foundation that funds critical primary transplant research that has helped make Australia a leader in transplant innovation. Listen in for her fascinating story, her tips and techniques to build your resilience, and some of the biohacks that she shares with her clients. She's all that. Welcome to the She's All That video podcast. I'm September Smith, the host, and today I am so happy to have Wendy Jenkins here with me. Wendy is a leading resilience coach, and her company name is Ready Resilience. And considering we all are in a time which since World War II, the entire world has not seen this much concentrated and extended stress in our society, in our relationships, financially, economy. It's such a time of stress and the impacts that it's having on us psychologically that you focus on resilience, Wendy. You must be in high demand right now. Uh, well, yeah, it, it certainly is. Uh, you know, unfortunately, yes, I I am in demand, but um, I wish it wasn't so. But yeah, it's uh, a resilience is one of those things that is being talked about a lot at the moment uh, because, you know, it's such a key skill to deal with things like pandemics and, you know, being in isolation and and all of that. So I'm really glad I can come on board to your podcast today and share some of my little tips and neuro hacks and hopefully that will be a benefit to your uh, listeners. Oh, I know it's going to be more than little tips. I was thinking today, as, we, as I was getting ready, I was like, okay, I'm going to be talking to Wendy and um, with your extensive background that we're going to get into what you do, both with your business, all the people, both businesses and individuals you help, but you also have a foundation that actually is really impacting the situation of lung transplants and lung transplant patients and research in Australia. You're doing a lot of big stuff here. but So I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be talking to her. And then I had this one small little thought and I thought, oh, Oh, I just need to just calm down and take a breath. I'll do some box breathing, which seems to be so popular nowadays. And then I thought, she's not about just calmness. Wendy's about a whole other thing that relates to stress, but it's resilience. Is it, would, you, would it be true to say that this thing that we're going for, this calming, is just a short-term uh, approach to dealing with our stress versus resilience? And what is the difference? Yeah, that great question. Uh, well, I like to see resilience as sort of an overarching um, umbrella uh, for some of the different techniques like calming yourself or being resourceful or tenacious, you know, those types of skills which really can help you in, in not just your working life but personal life and, you know, your relationships with people too. So, yeah, calming is obviously what people often think of when they think of resilience. It's like, you know, um, having that composure and, you know, being in control and, you know, you see, you know, probably somebody or a few people that just always seem to have their, their act together and nothing seems to phase them and, you know, they just seem to be able to deal with things. Um, but, you know, to be honest, they might actually be a bit like a, you know, the, how the duck paddles underneath the water. Um, I've talked to a lot of people over the years that I personally thought were like that, but once I get to know them, realise that they're actually putting on a really brave face and you would be surprised at how stressed a lot of people really are and just are really good at hiding it. Um, so That's really coming out this, yet, this year. We're seeing that. You can't hide this. 
No. Well, and I think, you know, what's happened is that a lot of people who usually can deal with whatever's on their plate, the pandemic has thrown out a lot of that and they're facing a very different situation to they're used to and they don't actually have the resources and the skills to deal with that. And that's where they've kind of, you know, been surprised about how, how they've reacted and, yeah, that's where resilience can come in. Well, before we get any deeper, I've already taken it pretty deep into the whole thing of resilience. I want to get into your backstory because, I mean, somebody might be listening thinking, well, what does she know about resilience? (laughs) So I know you, like myself and many other people, one of the things that helped you build resilience was early in your life, you moved many times while you were growing up. What what did you say? Eight different schools as a child and 20 different moves? Yes, and uh, potentially another one to come. (laughs) I don't know if I'm crazy or or not, but... uh... Yeah, that was, I'll blame my uh, father for that. Um, with his job, we moved a lot when I was small. Um, actually lived in America for a little while as well, in California. So I'm a bit of a soft spot for America. And I visited Canada as well. So been been to uh, your lovely country. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess I didn't realise at the time, but as a child, you learn these skills uh, along the way. And, yeah, so that, yeah, it was certainly tough the first few times I moved, but I got used to making friends. And even today, walking into a room full of strangers doesn't bother me in the least. I'm quite comfortable with that. And I'm like, oh, right, who am I going to meet today? So Yes. Yeah, so, so now your yeah. your experience with resiliency did not stop there. So I'm handing you the, the floor. Go ahead. Tell us how <laughs> you got to where you yeah, were. Yeah, what happened? Resilience. Well, I guess I was, you know, on a very typical path of, you know, I went to school and then I was, um, you know, encouraged to go to university. So I did that and I did applied science degree initially and uh, I, I worked in all sorts of different areas and um, then fell in love with the idea of doing human resources. I'm not sure if you call it the same in Canada. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I did uh, another degree in that and ended up working at um, a large petrochemical company. You probably guess which one, but um, yeah, so I ended up there and and really loved it and was thinking, okay, this is going to be my career and I'll, you know, perhaps travel overseas with them because they had offices around the world and, uh, you know, everything was sort of planned. Mm-hmm. And I was one of those people that liked to plan things because it gave me a sense of control and I now understand why <laughs> all that was going on. But, uh, yeah, I thought, right, this is this is me. And so when I, uh, I got married um, to mm-hmm. my husband, Gordon, and... So coming up to 20 years next year. And congratulations. He, yeah, he, he and I uh going along fine. We've done the usual bison cats and the dog and you know, build our family. Uh, and I just started getting really puffed. And I just thought, oh, that's really odd that I feel so unfit. Uh, and I decided I was going to lose some weight because perhaps that was the issue. So I started doing a weight loss program and I was marching around the streets and I'd lost 10 kilos and I still felt really puffed and worse than I had before. And I thought, that's just not right. And I remember one day I was working um, back late at, at the office and I'd parked my car in the car park next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I went to go and collect my car and realised the lifts were out. So I thought, right, well, I don't want to be that person that goes in the stairwell. So I'm going to walk up the ramp to the car because I felt safe there was cameras and it'll be fine. But uh, by the time I got to level seven, I think it was, uh, I was feeling really, really puffed. And all I remember is touching the door of the car. And the next thing I knew, I woke up and I was looking at the roof and I'd fainted uh, as I'd hit the car and I'd fallen along the car, round the back and hit my head 
on the concrete thing that you back the car up to. So I had, a, I didn't know at the time, blood everywhere and bruises and, oh, and whatnot. And my bag was everywhere. And I thought I'd be mugged initially. And then I realised, no, I just fainted and there was no one around. So I had no idea how long I'd been out for. Uh, so I got back in the car. Stupid, shouldn't have done this. I know, I know now. Um, don't drive after fainting. <laughs> Drove home, walked in the door. My husband took one look at my face that I hadn't really seen in the mirror. And he went, what you know, happened to you? Uh, and when I realised that, that happened, I thought, I've got to go and see a doctor. This is not normal. So I went to see my uh, general practitioner doctor the next day. And thankfully, she was really well hooked up into the medical community. And um, before I knew it, um, I was fast tracked through a bunch of specialists over here. And, you know, I had cancer people looking at me and brain people looking at me and neurological people. And now, how old were you at this point? I was oh, in my, what would I have been, probably late 20s. Yeah. 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 In yes, your so prime. Almost 30, yeah. Mm. And thinking, God, I don't want to be somebody who's got cancer at 30 and then oh, I don't have a brain hemorrhage. And every specialist I went to, I was, you know, worried that this was what I was going to have. Uh, and then after a few weeks, I wound up at the Alfred Hospital, which is a very big hospital here in, in Melbourne, in Australia, uh, being told I had two years to live unless I had a lung transplant. Uh, it was two years to live. Yeah. yeah, I just burst into tears, as did my husband. Uh, that was that was a, the biggest shock out of all of them. I wasn't that came from nowhere. I you know you don't even think transplant. That's just such an unusual thing. So. They didn't even kind of like work up to it. No, there was no mention of it. There was no, no, no one sort of saying, oh, it might be that. Like, there's no mention just at all. Bang, and when I thought, it. just bang. <laughs> and the reason why I found out afterwards is there was a female very similar in age to myself who had the same illness, who had um, not believed them because she, she was, you know, like you and me, chatting, talking, working fine, and could not believe that she was that sick, that she needed a transplant. So she refused to go through all the testing and she died <gasps> about a year or so later. So oh they God. were very adamant. They wanted me to understand how serious this was, yeah. even though I was still looking fine. So at, at this point, you need a lung transplant, just one, I'm hoping. Oh, well, they do double mainly in Australia unless there's a reason why, you know, they need to do a single. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, so it was a double, double and, lung. And they told yeah. you you had two years to live. Yeah, yeah, which, which I technically did and, and what they said to me is what we're going to do first before we put you on the waiting list is to try all these different um, medicines and different uh, trial drugs a lot of them were out of the states in Canada uh, just to see if you know they would help as well so I was on all sorts of things and actually one of the one of the ones I often mentioned is I was on Viagra for quite a few months because Viagra used to actually be used to open up blood vessels and yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So that's effectively, you know, what's going on when ma- males use it. Uh, and, <clears throat> excuse me, for females, it doesn't have the same impact, <laughs> but it, it certainly does still open up your vessels. So they had me on three Viagra tablets a day, plus um, blood thinners, plus uh, medicine to slow my blood pressure down. And the combination of opening up the vessels and slowing it and thinning it was basically keeping me in sort of status quo. Oh, my God. But they said after a few years of trying to do all of those, it's just not going to fix you. Um, we don't want to wait till, you know, you have a heart attack or, or something like that. We're going to need to put you on the list. So were you able to work and, and function at least semi-normally during that time, but only with the help of all this yeah. medication? So yeah, af- then after a few years, you had to have the transplants? 
Yeah, so I was still working. I was, I kind of guess, lucky in a way that it was a disease that uh, you'd kind of go downhill really quickly. So I was a very slow, gradual, and then I I was going to drop. So they were going to try and catch me before that happened. Mm -hmm. And I would look at people in wheelchairs on oxygen and gosh, oh God, look how bad they are. They're going to be before me. And they'd say, no, you're you're a lot sicker than they are. Oh, wow. Someone like that for years. You're, you're, you know, just don't compare yourself. You're, you're going to be you know, getting a transport before they do. And that was a shock because I, you know, I'd be out working and no one looking at me even knew. And I kept it quiet um, at work. I only told a few sort of close people. At the time, I didn't want to be judged by it. I didn't want people to take work off me because I didn't think I could cope or that... I was too stressed or anything like that. I did go down to part-time just so that I had time to fit in medical stuff and that. But, um, yeah, apart from that, I was just work as normal and I just had to have my phone at the ready uh, for when I did go on the uh, the waiting list um, because Mm -hmm. I needed to get to that hospital whenever they rang. So... I would think that at that time, I mean, as much as you're trying to keep a balanced life happening, you would have been drawing on every single skill you ever learned of resilience in your childhood through all that. How, even still on top of that, how did you cope with this weight hanging over your head? Uh, Well, you know what? I think the simple answer is I was in denial. (laughs) I really, and looking back at it, it's actually interesting because your brain, it actually does forget things on purpose. It's a built-in protection mechanism. And so this is why sometimes people, you know, don't remember certain parts of trauma or accidents or other, you know, issues that they've had in their life because your brain deliberately does not want you to remember that. And so for me, a lot of that time is just a blur. And I think what I did is I just focused so much on work, put it aside, and I went to my appointments and whatever, and a little part of me was kind of going, you know, I don't quite believe them, but I'll go along with it because, you know, I, you know I'm you not going to be that lady who died, you know, I'll, right. I'll listen to them. Mm-hmm. And I did have a good belief in the medical system and I thought, you know, well, they wouldn't tell you something like that if there wasn't some truth in it. Yeah. Uh, but I really was just like, and I was, you know, I was in denial about the fact I didn't even second guess if I'd get a transfer. And, I, and looking back on that, that was a bit cheeky because really? you know, it wasn't a given I was going to get one. I just assumed I would. And maybe I put that out in the universe um, and I was lucky I, I did get one. But, yeah, given two years to leave, I got um, told about my transplant after 22 months. So it was getting <gasps> oh. to two years and I was like, well, I hope they call me soon. And, uh yeah, get the get the phone call. So, so in the post in the post surgical yeah. time, you know, you're rehabilitating, recuperating. Uh, how long does that actually take? I would think that would be a long recuperation period. Yeah, it, it really does vary. I was surprised. Um, I I had a bit of a bad start um, because when they went in to do my lung transplant, they actually damaged my vagus nerve, which is what regulates your digestive system. And even today, everything Shit. takes twice as long to go through, and I don't get the same warning signals often that other people get. Um, so that was that was a big issue. They also damaged my vocal cords, so for a while there, I couldn't talk at all. So I came out of surgery not being able to communicate with my voice. I had no voice, oh um, and so I had to write down everything to explain what was going on to the doctors, or to my husband, or to visitors. And I've got this notebook just full of scribbles because I thought I was writing essays and really put together words but it was like a kindergarten scribble and they they said sometimes they had no idea what I was trying to tell them (laughs) but uh, was that because you were medicated or yeah I was super medicated and then my hands were shaking so much from the drugs and things that I just couldn't write properly 
uh, and I'd get really exhausted. But I had to learn how to swallow water again. Uh, so that was wow. a test. Um, yeah, so they had, um, you know, the, um, the person who helps you with your voice, the speech pathologist, helped mm -hmm. me learn how to swallow, drink water. I mean, I was a bit unusual. A lot of people don't go to all that. Then I had to learn how to to talk again for a while they thought I'd only get to a whisper obviously that didn't happen it, it sort of bounced back after about six months which they were a bit surprised about I was very relieved about so wow. yeah but it was a tough it was a tough year for me and I was in ICU for about two weeks and then went into the specialist ward for about another four then I decided I would tell a little white lie that I was better than I was because I just wanted to get home and that was a big mistake because a few days later oh. I was back in hospital. Oh, no. So, yeah, so it was a bit of back and forth for the first year. And, um, yeah, I, I struggled probably most psychologically with the whole thing because I could no longer be in denial that my life had changed and I had to, uh, yeah, I guess admit that things weren't going to be like they were and, you know, off the back of having a transplant, I wasn't able to have children. So that was a, another thing to was, wrap my head around. Was that directly connected to the transplant? Yes, because of all the drugs, um, some of them cross the placenta and things, and they're just, you know, it's just not an ideal environment for having a baby. So, yeah, so that was off the car, off the table. And uh, my husband oh. used to joke he wanted six kids. <laughs> that was never going to happen. But, um, yeah, so lots of changes. And it, it was hard to get my head around that. Well, I... Yeah, I don't think anybody, even somebody who had pre-existing resiliency skills could have really swum through that one. At mm. what point was it that you began to focus on learning more about resilience? Was it mm. during that recuperative period? It wasn't initially. The first few years, I, I, like I said, I really struggled and I did get some help from, you know, psychologists and counsellors and, you know, tried different group classes on meditation and all sorts of things like that because I knew I needed help I mean that I think is the first thing that everyone probably you know needs to go through is realizing that you do need some help with with whatever's going on and I think the people who just keep trying to push through push through without getting some more techniques or tools to do that that's where it all goes wrong and mm -hmm. you have people who have you know breakdowns but Mm. um yeah I got to the point after about six years uh and I know that sounds like a long time but um, after about six years, I was getting close to the average. So in, in Australia, and I, I believe in the US it's very and Canada, it's very similar. It might even be less in your countries. Um, the average is seven years after having a lung transplant, which um, the life expectancy is. So it's not that long. A lot of people assume once you've had a transplant, you're fixed for life, but that's not the case with any transplants. Um, heart transplants on average are about 12 years. Uh, livers and kidneys are about 25 which so I'm, and lungs, lungs tend to have the shortest. Yeah, because you're breathing in air, which has, you know, there's a lot more risk of getting, you know, bacterial infections or other yeah. issues that could go wrong. Uh, yeah, so the, that seven, coming up to that seven years, and I've talked to a lot of other patients about it, and they all were very similar. It's like, oh, I'm getting up to that cutoff point that everyone's been telling me about this seven year thing. And I refused to be the average. And I said, well, the whole point of averages is, it's a curve and, you know, someone's got to be at the bottom end and someone's got to be at the far end. So why can't that be me? And that was one of my light bulb moments. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So it was like, well, why why should I be the one that's, like, I haven't passed away yet and I knew people who had already. So I thought, well, well maybe I'm the one that's supposed to be at the far end. And then I started meeting some of the other patients who were further out because 
as I explain to a lot of the patients and caregivers, because I, I talk to them regularly, um, when you go into a waiting room at a hospital or a clinic, you're seeing the sick people usually. You're not seeing the, the healthy ones. They're at home or living their life or at work or whatever. So you get a very skewed view of what, um, you know, being a patient is really like. So, you know, nowadays I've gone in and there's been a new nurse in the clinic and she thought I'm the caregiver. And she said, oh, where's your patient? And I'm like, no, I'm the patient. She's like, really? You look, you don't look like a patient. I said, I know, that's the point. <laughs> so that thought was just like a thunderbolt. Yeah. Why, why not me? Uh, why not me be the one that brings the average up? Yeah, why have, I not, why have I just been so intensely focused on this seven years when it's just the average? And, you know, literally only one person is really the, the real average. Um, I could be either side. I want to be the other side. And I met somebody who was at 25 years and, you know, that just changed everything for me. I just thought, oh, well, if they can do it, I can do it, you know. And I thought, right, what, how, how can I get to that point? So that's when I started looking into what do I need to be that person? And I started doing all my research and I looked into, well, you know, how are they looking after their health? And, you know, what things were they doing differently? You know, one, one guy was telling me he drank three litres of water a day and he swore by that. And he was at 28 years. So I was thinking, well, maybe he's got a point. Mm-hmm. So I think, right, I've got to up my water intake. And um, then I was, um, I did some NLP training and I was learning some of the techniques from that, from that. And I would come across people from all walks of life who would give me little bits and pieces of mm-hmm. ideas of, you know, what I could do, how to change what was happening up here. Mm. And I quickly realised that up here was the key because if you can tap into your brain, you can change so much about how you act and how you respond to people and how you live your life. And so that became a real passion for me and that's how I yeah, found myself into the neuroscience resilience Wow. So yeah. what did that path look like when you, you discovered like, yeah, it's all perspective, not just even perspective. That's kind of like the, the very almost top layer, but like it's, it's what's going yeah, on in your brain. Science of it. Yeah. Because I realized um, as I was talking, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those probably really annoying patients who wants to know the why behind everything. So I ask a billion questions and I'm always like, but why am I on that tablet? And what's it actually going to do for me? And why can't it work with that one? And why were, and they got to know me after a while and they would just start with the, okay, Wendy, this is all the stuff you can ask. <laughs> I'll just tell you from the beginning. <laughs> and um, we have long chats about, you know, the why and everything. And I found that fascinating. And so I applied the same theory to my mental health and went, well, what's actually going up in there? And I started reading about how the brain reacts to stress and to, um, you know, PTSD because I've been diagnosed with that in the early days and severe depression. So I wanted to know how does that all come about? And I realised it was all to do with the way the brain was reacting and, you know, the different chemicals that were being released and the different little things that, like, you know, we have this little thing in the back of our down at the bottom of the brain stem that actually recognises how quick your breathing is going. And on the basis of that, it then decides how to act. So there's, you know, if I started hyperventilating, you know, doing deep breathing, all of a sudden my body is going to go, oh, there's, a, there's something we've got to be fearful about and it's going to flood my body with, you know, chemicals and, um, you know, make my heart beat faster and do all sorts of things to prepare me for the fight, flight or what I call freeze mm-hmm. um, response. So, you know, there's once you understand how your body is actually, you know, what it's actually going through, you can then realise, well, I can actually control that as well. Mm-hmm. And that was the cool part. And I just, yeah, I just fell in love with it all. 
So you got deep into studying the whole, the neuroscience-based approach to mm. resilience, uh, applying it to yourself. Yeah. And eventually, when was it, how did you come to the decision that I need to show other people this, I need to be working with other people and help them strengthen their resilience? Yeah, well, I would. I was often told um, I'm one of the most resilient people that they know. Like, I got that a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, you're very inspirational. You know, I, you deal with so much. I can't believe all the things you had to deal with. And, you know, amongst all this, you know, there, there was a lot of other things going on. My mum my passed away from breast cancer. And, you know, there's just there was a lot going on. And I got you know, got through all of that. Um, but yeah, that was one of the things. And I realised that maybe what I learned and knew was something other people would want to know. And because I had the human resources background, I was very mindful of not just diving into something and, you know, going, oh, I can coach you in that. You know, I wanted to have some proper training in it. So I went and became a certified neuroscience resilience coach because I wanted to learn what I should and should say to people and should and shouldn't say and make sure that you know I wasn't you know it's a it's a it's a field where you don't want to be mucking around with people's brains yeah. and, and getting them to well you know believe certain things if they're not actually true and I wanted to know the science so yeah so that's kind of where that led me to and you know I would just be like talking to someone like yourself about what I'm doing and people go oh do you coach in that or oh can you help our business in that or and so, you know, or can you jump on and do a webinar about that? Um, and it's just kind of naturally evolved. And, and then I thought, well, I best register my business name and, and uh, turn this into a proper business. And that's what I've done. That's incredible. Yeah. So I'm curious, who do you prefer working with? We won't tell your clients. The businesses <laughs> and the business situation or the individual? Oh, it's a tricky one. You know, I think they learn in a different way. So with individuals they're coming they've sought me out because they've got a specific issue or problem that they're wanting to fix and and they're wanting usually you know I won't generalize too much but generally it's because they're feeling out of control stressed all the time not sure how they can cope with everything they've got on their plate just want to feel mentally tougher stronger be that woman that they or man that they see that always seems to have their shit together yeah they want to be that person and they don't know how to do it and so they see what i'm doing and they go i, I need some help i need some resilience coaching whereas with businesses it's a slightly different angle because it's often the maybe the human resources manager or the manager or the office manager who's making the decision that the culture or the mental strength of their staff needs to be changed so it's not necessarily the employees who are coming up with I want to be more resilient yeah yeah <laughs> you know and I and I'm very mindful of that when I talk to people in webinars about it because I'm like you know you, you've possibly been just told to jump on this and do this and your manager's when you're doing it because you've been you're a good employee and you've been told to do it but let me tell you that you'll actually get something out of this as well and so yeah there's pros and cons to both but I like doing both I think I would be imbalanced if I was only doing one and not the other Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so a bit of hey everyone, I'm just bringing in here for a moment to say I hope you're enjoying this episode and this week's guest. Have you been thinking about becoming a speaker or a podcast guest to get your message out there? It's a really great opportunity, but for a podcast host to take that risk on you, you need a solid pitch. And who better to tell you how to craft that podcast pitch than a podcast host? I can help you craft the perfect pitch that's going to get you booked on the perfect podcast for you. With my perfect pitch working consultation, in just one hour, we'll develop the pitch to get you booked on the right podcast for you. My listeners can save 20% with the link and the discount code below in the show notes. 
I'm excited to help you get started as a great podcast guest. And now back to the show. So in addition to dealing with everything in your own life, and then you're back at work, you're, you're starting this coaching. Somewhere along the way, you also end up creating a foundation, the Longitude Foundation, which is, as you see, well, you tell the story, it's filling a gap that if you were not there with your foundation, this would not be happening in Australia at all. Tell us about the Longitude Foundation. Sure. Well, it actually uh, was uh, something that we got involved with, I suppose it was a couple of years after I'd had my transplant. I came across a lady um, called Margaret who had had in the end three double lung transplants. And she lasted, I think, about 15 years all up. And she was a lovely lady. She had a very similar background to me and with the disease and everything. And she had realised pretty early on that research was just not being funded in the public hospital system in Australia for lung transplants because it's a public health system. They just didn't have excess money for that sort of thing. And so she had created a uh, Margaret Pratt Foundation, which had started to do some of that work. And, and they... They were doing some amazing things and I decided to get involved with that after she passed and I ended up um, chairing that for oh, the fundraising side at least about six years I think um, and it was going along fantastically I think we ended up raising about 1.5 million dollars and um, yeah that was great and then what we decided to do was to wind that up because it needed um, needed a few more bells and whistles for, mm -hmm. for want of a better way of explaining it so we decided to create our own foundation um, called the Lungadu Foundation, uh, but we we're going to make it much broader. She was just focused on research. We wanted to, you know, now that we knew a lot more about the environment, we realised that there was a place for advocacy and talking to the government and health officials and being a voice for the patient and the caregivers. There was a place mm -hmm. for educating people that, you know, transplants weren't the life they were. You know, <clears throat> they had short life expectancy and there was a need for funding and, and then also to support people because my husband in particular is a caregiver. They, the hospitals aren't geared to, to help them they were only paid to help the patients. So there were a lot of caregivers going, you know, struggling and had no support. Um, so we really wanted to make, sort of cover all of those areas. Mm -hmm. And we were lucky to pull in some, you know, great contacts of ours to help kick it off and uh, some very generous donations. And yeah, it's uh, four years now down the track. And I think this year we raised a quarter million dollars. And yeah, we're just kicking goals and um, yeah, making some big differences because what happens with funding, and I think that's similar probably in Canada, mm -hmm. is that when there's some big grants that are available out there, you often have to show proof of something having worked. It seems a bit counterintuitive. You think, well, I need the money to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, it's like a circle thing. So we, we invest in what we call seed funding, which is where we fund the initial um, research where they can prove that it's going to work. And then that allows them to apply for these massive grants and they can then roll out oh. the programs and, and the research. And it's made some big differences. Wow. Um, we've had some things where we've been able to do um, organ donation after cardiac and also brain death. So you can actually do it. That was kicked off in Australia by one of the people who actually sit on our board now. And it's been since rolled out across um, the world. Um, wow. We actually do work, um, some of the research work is actually done in conjunction with other um, universities. So uh, um, in Calgary, they, um, they do some work with guys there at the university uh, with some of the testing results. And yeah, we do partnerships with the Australian Red Cross um, Blood Service as well, uh, working out, you know, really tight matches on people. So since I've had my transplant, the matching's got so much better. So people are going to last longer. Uh, yeah, so there's some really cool, 
cool um, research projects they're working on and they're some of the best researchers in the world and yeah, very proud to be funding them. Yeah, and so you, you've you actually created this necessary bridge between <laughs> the, the brilliance and the brains that could do this stuff mm. and that intermediate, well, we have to find out if it's going to be viable for them to get the funding. If yeah. you weren't there, they, they just wouldn't, wouldn't be getting the funding. And yeah, there would yeah, just wouldn't be any research. So, um, and likewise, some of the programs, so we're due to implement a peer-to-peer support program this year, which will help the caregivers, um, you know, have people they can talk to and yeah. build networks with um, because... Yeah, that's such an important part of um, being able to cope with resilience. One of the modules I teach is collaboration. You know, if you don't have that social uh, support, um, that can be a you know, huge gap. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really interesting. And there's been some overlap with what I do with my work and, and what we're doing in the foundation where I go, well, that I should really be, you know, looking at how we can implement that for free charge for the patients and the caregivers. And so, it's, yeah. yeah Good. that's amazing oh my god <clears throat> yeah, coming at no, this thing from two uh, sides and then making amazing change so yeah. you mentioned in your business and what, what what you do with people so do you have a a set program that you use with businesses and a set program that individuals can use or do you do private work with people yeah um, well i have um partnered up with a company that is uh, being set up by psychologists and learning experts um, who focus on this neuroscience resilience so i have a platform um, that i get my clients to go on and it's either on the computer or, or app based and it's um oh. daily micro task learning and ta- and uh, little trainings about neuroscience and when i first get people involved with it they're often like Oh, but, you know, it's like five, six minutes a day. And I'm like, oh, surely that's not going to be enough. And the interesting thing is that your brain actually prefers to learn in micro-learning. It doesn't like to learn large chunks of data and information. It just It's just not set up to do that properly yeah. if you want to embed it properly. So if you want to be good at resilience, you need to do a little uh, very repetitively. Oh. And so that's why this app is designed that way. It's not jump on here and listen to a half-hour you know, thing about how you're the freeze, fright and flight mechanism works. It's not about that. It's just little bits every day. And then that helps you build up the practice. And then as part of that, there's all these tools and techniques that you can learn, which the neuroscientists have learned along, you know, the last 20 years in particular, um, neuroscience has really come to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that those are the other techniques that then I, then I share. Um, I call them... Um, well, hackinars or, or workinars, because you actually do some learning and actual putting into practice. So it's not just listening to me rabbit on about the science that would bore everyone to death. It's actually not me, going, but okay. yeah, some <laughs> yeah, well, for some people, they love it. Um, but, you know, it's explaining, OK, this is why it's happening, but let's try that now in person. So, for example, um, you were saying before that you were getting quite flustered before you, because you're running around and, you know, getting ready to come on and yeah. trying to do the calming thing. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of little really easy tips that I could share with you if you wanted about oh, how you yes, can calm please. in the moment. So one of them was, it's a neuroscientist, it's actually a um, university professor, and his little tip, he reckons it's one of the fastest way to slow your body down from the, you know, flight fright flight, fright, and freeze reaction. And it's again to do, so at the back here, there's the, the pre-Botzinger complex, it's called, long long name for a little thing that sits at the back here of your neck. Um, and this is the one that recognises how fast you're breathing. And so 
he teaches a little technique which I like to call the um, I guess the the double it's like a, a double thigh for want of a better word I've got to come up with a more funky name <laughs> but let's call it the double thigh <laughs> and okay. so what happens is and I'll show you how you do it so okay. when you know when you do a big sort of in-breath and it's sort of like it's almost like a sniffing sort of inhale like mm -hmm. that through your nose and mm -hmm. and that what you, he says to do is if you do it like a double one so you go and then an even deeper one the second time oh yeah that is enough to short circuit your body into thinking oh actually I don't need to be stressing as much um, because it makes the body re almost like a reset um, so it's what? a really funny little so technique simple. yeah so simple and this is the thing which I try to explain to people it's nothing has to like there's a lot of the techniques I teach are all micro techniques because I know very well you know you're sit sitting in a meeting or you're at a stressful family dinner or whatever it is you don't have time to pull out a half hour technique where you have to be sitting meditating on the floor like you just <laughs> sorry that's, Uncle not how, that's not how life works um you know you need it in the moment and you need to, i call them stealth techniques because you need yeah. to be able to do them subtly that no one can tell you're doing them so, so can I'm, you do the double size stealthily yeah yeah so if you're sitting oh, in no. a meeting you can just quickly go like that and no one's really going to think anything of it. They might give you a bit of a sideways glance and go, oh, she's got a cold or something. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, <laughs> I just yeah. tried it. I don't know if yeah. the mic picked it up. I just tried it. There is actually a physical response when you do that. Yeah. You have just yeah. blown my mind. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So the, the brain is, um, it's, well, I like to actually say the brain's lazy because it actually wants to do the least amount of work as possible it wants to um it actually always wants to um, go to the negative first it finds that easier to deal with is that just kind of a self-protective thing or yeah yeah it's just the way it, it, is. Oh, it might and, be bad and, yeah it just automatically jumps to the bad so you have to deliberately um push it to the positive and what happens is they've actually done some scientific studies about it is that for every negative thing that you sort of think you need to have five things that are positive to offset that's the the, the ratio like in so the moment for, yeah so if for example and it can be in the moment it can be long-term technique that mm -hmm. you learn so if, for example you're having a bad day and i know you're in heavy traffic and it's all driving you mad and you're getting cross with the driver in front of you um and that's the negative in your brain's naturally in the negative and thinking you know cross about this um if you then think of five things that you're grateful for that will then offset your negative and start turning your brain around so as you start to go well i'm grateful i have this lovely car or i'm grateful that um i'm actually able to drive a car because i know people who can't or i'm grateful that okay i might be a bit late but at least i'm heading off to a you know see my friend or yeah. whatever it might be and by the time you've gone through five of those uh your brain is more balanced and you'll be feeling a lot better so yeah it's a one to five ratio they picked up in the studies Hmm. Uh, and a simple little technique like that. Um, I used to be one of those people that thought gratitude was a bit, you know, airy fairy, whatever. But it, there's a lot of uh, neuroscience research around gratitude, and it actually does work. So, so yeah. some of the things mm -hmm. I've heard recently, of like um, before you go to sleep and or when you wake up in the morning, just take a quick moment and just do a quick gratitude mm -hmm. list or scan or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's it, a it, thing. It, right. Yeah, okay. it does work. And, okay. you know, the sceptical me, as soon as I hear anything that I used to think, like I would I call it airy-fairy, 
I would go and do the research on neuroscience for attitude and I was shocked at <laughs> all the <laughs> reports that came up and I was like oh, okay, this is actually a thing. And neuroscientists will actually recommend it. Gratitude as one of the ways to come. So, yeah. So who knew? So this is why this is such a big part of your practice. Yeah. Your neuroscience-based yeah, resiliency coaching and training. Wow. Yeah, because if you can fix up here, yeah, that can change so many things. Um, even looking at nature, there's um, proof that if you look at fractal patterns in nature, which mm -hmm. are where, so, you know, you might have, um, say, a flower where it's yeah. got all the little petals in a pattern. Yeah. or a leaf with everything in a nice ordered form. Yeah. Uh, yeah, your brain actually likes the the um, the relief that comes from looking at a pattern because it doesn't have to think too hard because a pattern is very uniform and it recognises that as a very restful state to be in looking at a pattern. So if you're out cool. in nature and you go to look at different patterns that you see, that will calm you down in one to two minutes. So that. just find, if in fact it's not the dead of winter in Canada, go find some flowers and just look at the fractal pattern yeah. occurring in the, the petal orientation. Yeah. Snowflakes, even the way trees are, so even okay. when they're covered, yeah, covered in snow, they'll still have a pattern, a uniform pattern to them. Uh, yeah, lots of different things, or even, you know, find a man-made, you know, brick pattern or whatever it might be, oh. just the format of the pattern um, will really help. So yeah, you can, I've got a video that I put together for my clients which is a four-minute video, so it gives them extra. I have clients who say that they watch it over and over because they just feel so calm by the end of it. So and that's a calming kind of approach. And, and that, that is part of the resilience, but, but not the yeah. whole thing. Um, yeah. When you do resi resiliency training or coaching with you and say, I do significantly improve or strengthen my resiliency, is that, mm -hmm. uh, that's it, I'm done. I'm, I'm now a master resilience person <laughs> or is it something that one then continues working at and maintaining? Yeah, definitely. You, it's a lifelong thing because you'll never know what's around the corner. And so the way I like to describe it is, is once you've got the skills of resilience, so you're right, you know, being calm is just one of the little parts of it. Once you've got the skills of being persistent and tenacious and being able to collaborate well with others and to have great vision and, and all those other parts that you know form part of being good at resilience, it gives you a real sense of calm in, in an overall sense because you know whatever comes your way, you've got the tools to deal with it. So, you know, yeah. I know that down the track, I might have a health scare because I'm susceptible to getting pneumonias and salmonella poisoning and you know I've had all those in the past and yeah. whereas in the past I would freak out and go oh this is it uh, you know I'll be dying of pneumonia and I used to get myself in such a flap about it now I go right okay now let's think about you know what I'm going through what's the proof of this you know um, I'm in the right place I've got you know all the people around me to support me and I work through all of the the steps in a more rational logical manner and that makes me stronger to get through it and so I bounce back quicker and I haven't been overnight in hospital for years now because I just I just don't feel unwell and sick and I don't see myself I, I try not to call myself a transplant patient um, unless I have to because mm -hmm. I think there's a, um, a risk there if you just become a patient that right. that's what your brain tells you yes Yes, you're self-identifying as something that's not particularly helpful for, no, exactly. for the outcomes you want. Yeah. Wow, so that, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, when you say that, just knowing that the tools are there takes a little bit of the pressure off now. Because I mean, these mm -hmm. last eleven months we've been sitting here. I don't know about the rest of you, but sitting pretty much in my house with my family and my pets and wondering like, 
how many years yeah. is this going to last? Yeah. And worrying about what's going to come. So you're borrowing, borrowing worry and fear from the future. It's not bad enough now. Yeah. But knowing that, okay, even if it happens, I have the skills, I have the tools, mm. we'll get through this, I will deal. Mm. Yeah. That, and, that you know, would actually be reassuring. It is, yeah, it is reassuring. And to some extent, all of us, by going through the pandemic, have built our resilience without really realising it because next time something like this happens, you're going to look back or your brain's going to go back and go, what, what have we got in my memory bank of this having happened before? And how did I respond and what worked best and what didn't work best? And it's your choice as to whether you change how you dealt with it last time or not. But yeah. you've now got in your memory uh, some more things that are going to help you going forward. So next time you go, well, you know, we didn't need to buy so much toilet paper after all. And, you know, we didn't, need, we, I probably didn't need to stockpile whatever. And I probably should have talked more to my friends on, you know, the phone instead of, um, on the screen or or SMSing, um, there's a, there's also research that shows that um, voice and in person is much much better for yeah. building the connection than SMS and uh, Facebook messaging. So yeah, that, quite a lot so does that okay. explain the whole re like this explosion of Clubhouse? And it's, it's only audio. It's only audio. You're yeah. just listening into conversations as opposed to looking in more and listening. Yeah. Interesting. Could be, actually. Yeah. People don't. And again, a lot of this is subconscious. And I think um, this is why and I like podcasts. to bring it to the Yeah. Why I like to bring to the forefront because your body's going through this anyway. Why not make the best of it? You know, yeah. the process is going to be there. So why not understand it and turn it to your advantage? Yeah. Um, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, there were a couple of things that like I, I ask all my, my guests, what are three things that you wish people knew, either your clients or your patients or whatever, the three things. Mm -hmm. And um, the three that you gave me were that resilience is more than just bouncing back. Yes. And that that's the first one. And it kind of comes to something that, that a question I have. If someone wants to work with you and they want to be strengthened, strengthening their resilience, do they first have to get themselves calmed down to come up to level to start working with you because we're all pretty in a you know stress stress state can people yeah. start working with you even in the burnt out state they're in yeah and i yeah they do and and it's important that they as soon as they know they need help that they reach out for it and what i what happens with the program that i offer is it's actually got built-in mechanisms to pick up if they need more help than what i'm offering because oh. i don't pretend to be a psychologist or um, you know, somebody who can give that level of care. Like if you're if you've got um, PTSD, for example, you need higher care than what I can give you. And so what happens is based because it's an AI platform, artificial intelligence. So it actually picks up based on your answers whether you need more support than you're getting, and it'll actually pop up with a you know, have you considered reaching out to your doctor or or a psychologist to you know look into this further. So, yeah, so there's a level of, <clears throat> of care there. But, yeah, generally I find that the people who come to me, um, yes, they'll probably be quite uh, stressed or um, anxious about, about things. But when they learn the techniques of learning to control um, their breathing and all of that, then that gets them into the state where they can learn. And, and actual fact, the program will start with a, some options each time it pops up in the day. And the mm -hmm. first one will be, do you need to do a calming exercise? And so it'll it'll actually say to the prompt them, and they'll go if they're feeling a bit, they're like yeah I do, and they'll have a there's a few in there that they can pick from, so they'll find their favourite one and and do that first because what happens well, in your brain is you've got two parts of it that um, 
one of the, I like to call the smart brain, which mm -hmm. is the prefrontal cortex part. And then the other part is the, um, the limbic system, which is um, more the creative and emotional side of the brain. And so whenever you're under stress, that comes to the forefront and it basically takes over and the part of the smart part of your brain just isn't functioning like it should. So all of us during COVID, um, mm -hmm. even, you know, having a little bit of stress, we just haven't been functioning at our optimal. And so, yeah, you need to get that balanced back before you can start learning. Otherwise, you're not going to learn it as efficiently. Right. So that's where we sort of get them reset. And so that's all the little push. exercises will actually do that? Yep. Oh, yep. oh wow. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't take um, too long to, uh, and there's different ones. So some people will love doing like a, um, a calming, listening, meditative type one, which is just a short one. Mm -hmm. um, around breathing. Um, I don't like that because I've had a long chance that I don't like focusing on my breathing so much. It freaks me out, <laughs> uh, which is a bit weird. But yeah, so I do other ones where I do the fractal patterns. I do one which is, a, I call it five, four, three, two, one, where you look at, you know, five things you can see and four things you can hear and three things you can taste and all those sorts of things. Um, there's another one which says that looking at blue objects actually can help calm the mind as well. So really? there's all these little ones and depending on the day or what I'm going through, I'll pull out whatever tool I need. And so the, the app um, actually has all those in the library and they just go to whichever one they know works best for them. Or it might have been they've heard me on one of the webinars talking about a particular one and they go, I like that one Wendy shared the other day about the double snip. I'll do that one instead. Um, yeah, so that's kind of yeah how it works, and and then we build up their long term resilience. Okay. Um, yeah. The second one of the things that you wish people knew was that you can push through adversity no matter how difficult if you have the right tools. <clears throat> yes, and, and we need I, to know that at this point in in eleven yeah. months into a pandemic, <laughs> yeah, we no, can't get can. through this, right? You can, you can, and uh, you know I. I guess I'm lucky in a way that I'm a resilient coach during the pandemic. I've been best, best um, career to have if you're going through a pandemic, really. Um, so, yeah, that if you have the tools, um, nothing, yeah, nothing's insurmountable. And I've, I've read so many stories and talked to so many people. You know, as I share my story, others open up as well. And, and, and I'm sure you've been the same with some of your podcast guests is, you know, people have been through so much and yet they still keep going and they push through and you start to wonder why and how are they doing that? And and often, you know, they're just really driven or they've got such a, a key why of why they're doing something or, you know, they don't want to, um, you know, not be there for their family or they they just want to get on with life. And, you know, there's, I think if you can find your why and um, a real passion for living, mm. then that makes a difference. I mean, I'm, you know, I'll be well, not happy to admit, but I will admit that I got to a point at one stage where I wanted to end it all because I just found it all too hard and looked at my tablets and thought, oh, I wonder if that'll be enough if I take those and, um, oh. you know, had a really, really bad time of it. And, and thankfully, you know, my family picked up eventually that that's what was happening. I was really good hiding it. Um, and, yeah, I think uh, I look back on that time now and I go, what pulled me through that? And it's a funny thing. It was actually me thinking, oh, my husband doesn't know all the passwords for the, for all the accounts. And, and um, oh, he won't know what to do with the... Uh, it was the silliest thing. Like it just... It, but what happened, it made me laugh. And that was enough of a trigger again to get the brain out of that negative mode. And it was... Uh, 
Well, that's really good. And you know what, today, as even now, I haven't told you all the information of everything. Yeah. Because I knew how powerful that was to me. I know it sounds silly. And yeah. I'm going, oh, well, who would care if you're dead? Like, you know, you can sort out himself. But to me, that was enough. So I haven't given him all the details of, like, where the super thing is. And well, he could get it if he needed to. Like, he, he's not stupid. <clears throat> but to me, that's my way of saying I'm not ready to go yet because I've got unfinished business. Wow. And it's a really... It works for me and other yeah. people will find the other thing. It'll be like, we don't have kids. So, I mean, imagine if I had children, be like, I don't want them to be without a mother mm. or, you know, something else that would pull you through. Um, you know, and some people don't, you know, they're, they're you know, we, we've had people we know who, who haven't been able to pull themselves through. But in general, most people do because there's a reason they want to live. So, yeah. So have, have your reason, know your why, yes. and also have yes. something that you're passionate about. Definitely. Yeah. Always have two passions in life, I'd say. Yeah, not one, because if that one falls by the wayside, you don't have anything else. So always have two. There was something my dad taught me from a very early age. Always have two passions, when he used to say. And when I only had one, I was desperately seeking the second one. Um, first one was longitude, and the second one was with your That's amazing. Yeah. But now I feel really like balanced. Yeah. yeah. And it all, the, the whole thing of the, the neuroscience about it, you also, you use nutrigenomic products with, which is kind of getting into a biohacking thing, which is, is. that is the word of the last few years, the biohacking. And yeah. so tell me a little bit about that. Ready resilience biohacking. I know. Well, see, um, with a lot of the neuroscience I do, I call it neurohacking. And yeah. as I'm researching this, the word biohacking kept popping up. Uh, because there is a, a bit of an overlap um, because really biohacking is the whole body neuro is more the the neuro the neurological system in the brain yeah. um, and so I kept looking at this biohacking um, side of it and I'm thinking you know what it's one thing to have your mind right but what about your body because um, you know I, I want to last and I don't want to be in a body that's falling apart and I, I do have risks with you know different health issues and whatnot anyway a friend of mine introduced me to some of these products that actually help with dealing with oxidative stress and 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 again that pricked my ears I was like stress okay what's this about body stress and because I you know I dealt with a lot of stress I saw that on your website yeah you guys have to go to her website and see it she's got some great pictures on there about oxidative stress oxidative stress yeah and I was looking at that and I was thinking wow, that's really interesting. That's a natural fit for what I do with the brain and the body. If I can help with the stress that's going on in there and here, how cool would that be? And mm. so that's, yeah, essentially what um, these products do. They they help reduce that. And that is, um, I mean, if you Google oxidative stress um, into the, it's called PubMed, which is basically where you go to look at all the research articles that exist. Um, it covers the, the globe. Um, mm. So you go in there and there's, I think there's like 200,000 articles on research papers on oxidative stress. Oh, so wow. it's a big thing and it's been linked to all sorts of um, illnesses and aging diseases and you know, things like that. So I was just fascinated about that. So yeah, so that's just been another, it's not my main part of the business, but mm -hmm. it's certainly something that I yeah, introduce to people if, if I think it's going to help them. So, so yeah, these are like supplements? Yeah, they um they are supplements in a way, but I like to call them more of they activate. So again, it's going back to how I explained it before is your body already has these processes. So mm -hmm. why not make them work most efficiently? And what happens is as you age, your body can't handle oxidative stress as well as it used to when you're in your 20s. It's sort of mm -hmm. by the end of your 20s, it starts going downhill. A bit like collagen mm -hmm. <laughs> for females in particular, <clears throat> um, which keeps our skin looking good. 
So yeah, once you hit late twenties, all sorts of things start going wrong. But um, yeah, this is one of the things which isn't as uh, well handled. And so what these um, tablets and other products do, they help reset a lot of that and and make the um, pathways which you know all of this your body naturally wants to do work mm -hmm. more efficiently, like it used to when you were younger. So it's just. A, I suppose it's like a cleaning out, you know, a bit of a detox of your system, a bit of a reset and, and helping it to um, function better like it used to. Um, and so as a result of that, like I've got my dog on, on the tablets as well. It works on dogs and horses. Wow. And yeah, there's vets using it for horse therapy, you know, when they have like leg issues and um, and other things. And Do you know what's really funny? I'm sitting here well, thinking, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow, is that a thing? And then it's like, oh, they're using it for horses. It must be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well um, yeah, I mean, my dog, he's nearly 17 years old, which mm -hmm. is nearly like 100, what, 140 or something. So uh, he needs all the help he can get. <laughs> You're going to have to give me some of those for my dog. She's going to be 15. Yeah, yeah, no, they're great. They, yeah, he's he's still running around the park and he looks like a puppy. Like people, I say he's 16, nearly 17, and they go a month. So I'm like, no, no, years. <laughs> so he looks that good. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So you've got your foundation, you've got your program, yep. and you've got products working with individuals as well as companies. So if yep. somebody wants to find you, I know I found you on your mm -hmm. Facebook business page mm -hmm. and also on yep. your webpage. I'll be dropping those links down below in the notes, both in the YouTube video and in the podcast. And is there any one thing you could just as a parting gift, other than the double sniff, I love that. What is one thing that you would most like people to know that would help them with mm. their resilience? Well, I I often talk about um, how, say you look at a successful person that you know, and success is a lot of different things to different people. So it might be, you know, a mother who's really good with her kids or a father who's really great with his kids, or it might be someone successful in business or somebody who's just really good at caregiving or being on charities or, or whatever it might be. Um, if you look at that and you look at all the people that are in the room, um, the most successful person is not necessarily the most intelligent person or the most, you know, learned or they've gone to universities or all of that. They're usually the most resilient person because they've been able to get through whatever it is that they've had to face. And so I like to share that with people because often people go, especially when I start talking neuroscience, they're like, oh, I don't know if I can understand that. Um, and I'm like, well, it's taught from a 14-year-old standpoint so all adults can usually understand what I'm talking about um, but yeah you can actually be you know more successful in whatever part of your life if you have stronger resilience and that's kind of a cool thing you know if, if I can help people to have that yeah. and feel more successful in life because yeah they've got the tools they need um, yeah and you can do it at any age your brain continually learns no matter what age you are I oh, like yeah. that, that neuroplasticity, yeah. that, that, yeah. that's fabulous yes, information. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. yes. It was like, oh, good news. Yeah. Very neuroplastic. <laughs> so yeah. The, um, constantly, yeah, your brain's remapping things all the time. So you can be doing it until you're 100 or more. So if they come and work with you or check out any of your programs, you're going to help them remap things in a way that's going to give them even more resilience than they have now. Yeah. And, and we God knows it. we so need it. And you measure we it. it. We measure it. So it's done as a um, a bio. Uh, 
psychometric test that's done at the start and then at the end and it actually shows you what your key areas you need to work on and then it um, has some stats on it and then by the end you do that again and you'll see the difference so, that's yeah. fascinating so i'm all about the science i don't want to just say yeah. it'll change I'm, yes I'm measure it get our baseline yeah. measurements and then see what our progress is that's amazing yeah. well wendy thank you so much for coming by today and sharing everything yeah, about your, your experience your business your foundation and giving us some tools that we can take away i'm very happy to be on and um yeah thank you for inviting me september that was great you are so welcome it's been a pleasure so i'll be talking to you sounds great okay bye, bye. thank you bye Thank you so much for being with us today. Don't forget to take a look down in the notes to find any of the links to the goodies we talked about in today's podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or the YouTube channel so you don't miss the next episode. Rate us or review us on iTunes or on YouTube and share us with a friend that you think might just need a bit of inspiration to start doing her own awesome shit. Do you know an incredible gal that's all that that you think the world needs to know more about? Head on over to our Facebook or our Instagram channel and DM me. Tell me about her. We'll see if we can't get her on the She's All That podcast. She's all